0: I'm not afraid to
1: has been told by the Treasury to make yet more cuts to the defence budget. The banks open in Cyprus.
0: Massively important for me. We have bills going out. We have a loan with the bank that we use for the car. And the end of
1: an era for military search and rescue. But it's not all doom and gloom. So they can
2: transfer these very valuable skills that is very difficult to acquire elsewhere.
1: The Defence Budget is facing further cuts after the Treasury wrote to Whitehall departments telling them to prepare to have their funding trimmed. Most departments have been told to prepare for cuts of around 10%, but funding to the Ministry of Defence is expected to see a 1% real terms increase for equipment, but a 5% reduction on everything else. I'm joined by BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. Is this a surprise? No,
3: we've known about it since last July, um, that there was going to have to be further cuts. And also, that the further cuts are not just like next year or this year. Um, they're going to be running certainly until the next general election, which is scheduled for 2015, and probably after that. Most departments in Whitehall are being asked to look at 7 to 8% in, in cuts. The MOD, that's made a special case because of the conflict that it's in at the moment, and also because the tie-in with the Overseas Development Department, which isn't being cut, but the Overseas Development Department may take some of the MOD cuts itself and pay for things, such as air freighting, etc. That is the complication. But the MOD will still, in theory, get its 1% increase in equipment costs. And separate from that is what you spend your money on. Uh, every every, year, every defence budget. And that's where the 5% that the uh, Secretary to the Treasury is demanding that the MOD should make. So
1: where is the spending going to be cut back then, do you think?
3: Well, nobody knows at the moment, but you can cut back, for example, on what savings you might make out of less flying, less flying training, fuelling costs, uh, not going ahead with bringing a battalion or, or a unit up to operational uh, operational stage, what savings you make by bringing b- people back more slowly, let's say, from Germany, etc. And that's how you do it. But it's trimming now, rather than major cuts, unless, of course, you look at a huge programme like Trident and have to rethink it again.
1: Uh, and this all happening while the House of Commons Defence Select Committee due to hold a spending review?
3: The, that started on... at starting on April the 12th. They said, we want submissions by that. And they're looking ahead. They're saying... Where are we going to be with defence spending by 2015? And remember, by 2015, in theory, British forces out of Afghanistan, uh, new uh, tax cuts or new tax increases probably, and a new general election, public turning around saying, why do we have to spend this money on defence when we're not fighting a war in Afghanistan? And that is the main argument by uh, uh, the the Secretary to the Treasury.
1: Meanwhile, the thinking on strategy has been going ahead with a meeting of of the top military figures in Washington, the UK, and the Americans.
3: Yeah, they haven't had this sort of meeting in in decades. And what they're thinking is this. Forget, let's say, 2015... you and I have just been talking the about. Money. Yeah, well, forget the money. But what are we going to have to be thinking about that we might be doing? What sort of warfare might we be into uh, in, say, 2020, 20, 2025? And that's when uh, Philip Hammond goes along to the Treasury and says, you want 5% out of what? Because you, in, in defence, you can't say, oh, we'll cut it just for one year. If you order a bit of equipment, it's going to be in service, say, maybe for 30 years. And by thinking ahead." to what warfare you might be uh, involved in, what sort of equipment you want, that's the tricky thing ever by setting a defence budget.
1: Well, let's talk about a current and pressing issue. No one seems to have the solution for Syria, but as each side and their supporting countries grows increasingly desperate, the former UN Secretary-General Kofi Annan declared this week that it's too late for intervention. So what of the reports that the CIA is already helping weapons get to what it considers the right kind of rebels? And what will happen if the use of chemical weapons by President Assad on his own people is confirmed? Professor Rosemary Hollis joins me now. She is the Professor of Middle East Policy Policy Studies at City University. And Christopher is still here, of course. Rosemary Hollis, thanks for your time today. The reports this week are that the CIA is helping weapons get to rebels and offering intelligence as to which groups uh, should get them. This is a dangerous strategy, isn't it? It,
4: Very dangerous, because you have the Free Libyan... I beg your pardon. (laughs) That was a Freudian slip. (laughs) Um, The the very forces that the Western players, the United States in the lead, but Britain and France close behind, want to support are at the moment reliant on the work of al-Qaeda-linked elements to make progress on the ground, the al-Nusra front being uh, the main one concerned. And uh, that group has been declared uh, a terrorist organization by the United States. But the Syrian, the other Syrian, rebels are saying without the al-Nusra front and their ilk, volunteers of al-Qaeda persuasion, uh, they, they simply wouldn't have made the progress that they have on the ground. So how many rebel groups
1: are there at work in Syria? And do they, I mean, you mentioned one in particular, which much has, must have
4: some very different objectives to the others. Well, it's the usual story of uh, who's formally affiliated to whom, and who is a kind of copycat or franchise uh, simply in terms of their ideological outlook. Uh, Al-Qaeda-type elements and uh, small groups coming from different parts of the world, including, we're told, some volunteers from Western Europe, including Britain, and yet a a lot of Arab volunteers. Uh, It's ironic that the Assad regime wishes to emphasize that element of the rebel opposition much more than the indigenous opposition that he's facing and in the west we're doing the reverse. Christopher
1: what's the danger that this situation will escalate into a proxy war between Iran and Russia on one side who back Assad and on the other side the EU the US who back the Free Syrian Army?
3: It, It isn't already there. I mean that's that's the sort of that's, that's the unwritten sort of uh, problem here. Listen, you, let's suppose you've got something like thirty, twenty-eight, thirty different so-called rebel groupings. Some of them is that st- what we're looking
1: at, twenty yeah, or thirty?
3: Yeah, Some of them, Ro- Rosie has pointed out, uh, they've got the Al Qaeda links. You then start arming them, as going is going on at the moment. Let's say with the Qataris and the Saudis, sort of saying, yeah, we can buy this stuff. Let's let's say. Uh, in Croatia and then the CIA sit there with their assessments and say yeah but you've got to be careful who you let have it um, and we've also got to put this this, this weaponry and run it out of uh, a, a logistical base, American logistical base in, in, in Qatar it must not get to the uh, Al-Qaeda sponsored or sympathetic groups uh, because if it does that we are effectively supporting al-Qaeda. It is a contradiction. Now, it may be something to do with political morality, but that's the reality of it in in, in terms of the fighting.
4: And can I also add that this Qatar connection complicates the picture. The Qataris don't mind supporting al-Qaeda elements if it helps the Syrian rebels win. They've taken it against Assad, the Qataris, big time. They also don't mind supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, right, left and centre, that is not what the Saudis want to do. The Saudis regard the Muslim brothers across the region as a rival and up to a point they regard al-Qaeda type elements as more of a problem than an asset. And for the Western players, the Americans and the British in particular to be in cahoots with the Qataris and the Saudis in order to arm different rebels it doesn't act actually add up to... a A joined-up strategy because they've all got slightly different objectives and slightly different favorites.
1: Let me throw into the mix irrefutable evidence of the use of chemical weapons. Uh, A red line for President Obama should they be used against uh, the people of Syria.
4: What will happen in that scenario do you think Professor Hollis? Well I, I, I honestly think that we're never going to know for sure if such weapons are used who did it because there's lots of good reasons why the Assad regime would not resort to chemical warfare against its own population and the Do you believe elements. that it's
1: not yet happened and it's unlikely to happen as far as Assad is concerned I believe concerned, that then. there
4: will be uh, there will be attempts by both sides to discredit the other the rebels will wish to discredit the regime by suggesting they have been attacked with chemicals and vice versa Christopher
3: There are two battalions Syrian army battalions two only two battalions that are chemical weapons battalions Both of them have come a, up from category C to category A but they have not been ordered to release those weapons or how to use them Now it's quite a it's quite a military operation to get them ready. They're so-called binary weapons, which, you know, you, you fuse a diaphragm and, and you've got a weapon that you can actually use. This is not the sort of thing you necessarily do in a kitchen table in a bombed-out area uh, by, by rebel groups. I think what is particularly significant this week is the fact that there's a meeting of the Arab League. And normally the Arab League would have at the table a representative from Syria. But in fact, it is a rebel representative that has been welcomed by the Arab League and that tells us everything. It also tells you why the British and Americans and perhaps the French in particular want to get behind the rebels because they don't want to be out of step with the rest of the Arab League
1: Professor Hollister, just briefly in terms of possible uh, solutions or ways to bring the the situation forward the former head of the UN monitoring mission in Syria Major General Robert Mood has said now's the time for the international community to consider imposing a no-fly zone is he right on that?
4: it would have been better if it's going to be done if it had been imposed a year ago when the battle lines were slightly less uh complex than they are now but at, a, a year ago military chiefs were warning against it because even then they knew that you couldn't do this without enforcing it and that uh, british and other aircraft trying to enforce a no-fly zone would come under syrian fire and that fire would be deadly Professor Rosemary Hollis from City University,
1: thank you for your time today. SITREP with Kate Still to come, big changes ahead for search and rescue and the Royal Navy's last remaining Type 42 destroyer returns to Portsmouth for the final time. sit SITREP. At last, the banks have opened in Cyprus today after being shut for nearly two weeks. The country's experienced a roller coaster ride since Cypriot MPs first announced there would be a levy on all bank accounts in the country. That measure was thrown out by MPs and last-ditch talks finally achieved a deal this Monday for levies on sums over €100,000 in accounts in the two major banks. BFBS reporter Tim Cooper sent this report from Cyprus.
2: Around two dozen people were patiently queuing outside the Hellenic Bank at RAF and Kriteria this morning, keen to take advantage of it finally reopening. Force's wife Lindsay, like many, was relieved.
0: Massively important for me. We have bills going out. We have a loan with the bank that we use for the car. Um, had that not gone out, we'd have ended up with bank charges on top. Most of my banking is through the UK anyway, but for what we use over here we do need it.
2: There are still severe limits on what you can and can't do in the Cypriot banking system. Force's personnel and their families, along with everyone else on the island are restricted to taking out €300 a day in cash, either via the ATM or over the counter. But at least some normality has returned at the end of a turbulent week.
1: They've had it too good for too long. If you put £100,000 into Cyprus in 2008, you would have gained 15,000 interest. Where else in the world would you get interest like
2: that? That's Leslie Dicey, who runs a bookstall at the Limassol flea market. She spoke to me at the height of the crisis, when all the banks were shut, and there was a real chance that if a deal couldn't be done, the whole banking sector would go under and Cyprus would be forced out of the euro. For much of the week, there were strict limits on the amount of money that could be taken out of cash points. It stood at a maximum of just 120 euro yesterday. Commander British Forces Cyprus, Major General Richard Cripwell, explained to me the measures he'd taken to mitigate the effects on forces' families.
3: The first thing that we're able to do, following the quick response of the government, is to have some cash flown out to the island. Uh, We've been able to arrange for people to have a positive control over where their wages are sent. Uh, We've been working on keeping the post offices open. And we've also been able to arrange for cash payments for our locally
2: engaged staff. Cyprus turned into a cash economy, as did bases like RAF Akrotiri. No one wanted to take credit cards. Everyone wanted the elusive euro note in their back pocket. But despite the unfolding crisis, these forces personnel praised the way the British military was handling
4: it all. TVF has been on the ball, really, with getting people aware of what the next steps are.
0: Yeah, I get an email each day from the community support, and that's keeping us updated with the situation. Late
2: on Sunday night, a deal was finally done between the EU, IMF and Cyprus. A levy on deposits in the two largest banks, Lakey and Bank of Cyprus, will be imposed. Even now we don't have a figure, but it's likely to be 40%. Bad news for the many foreign investors in the country, like the Russians. Also disquieting for expats. Sheila Garrett told me that she thinks many will now leave.
4: They came here for quiet, quite comfortable life. But if they're going to be hassled with all this trouble with the bank and having their money taken away, then they're not getting what they came for. So they'll go back to England.
2: Back on base, Cypriot workers have been paid in cash this week. And personnel experiencing problems have been getting advice and even an advance on their wages if they find themselves in difficulties. The banks may have reopened, but the crisis continues. No one can predict how long the special measures imposed will continue. Along with the 300 euro a day limit, cash checking's been suspended, and you can only take a maximum of 1,000 euro in cash out of the country. Cyprus may have survived this, just, but it's certain that its banking sector is all but dead, and the good times enjoyed for so long are but a memory. Tim Cooper reporting for CITREP from RAF Akrotiri.
1: Christopher, are they out of the woods yet in Cyprus? I presume not, and far from
3: it. They're hardly even out of the Mediterranean, are they? I mean, Cyprus has been a laundry for crooked money for donkeys ears, and everybody's known it. I was talking last night to a Russian who reckons that the organisations that he represents, they've got something like 1.2 billion euros caught up in that. And they've been getting a lot of it out. What has happened, as far as Cyprus is concerned, is that the banks have been tattered. And it's also brought into a whole question how a small place like Cyprus can actually, or can it, throw the whole of the European system into some confusion. Now, that is the size of the problem. You imagine that problem sneaking off to Italy, Spain, etc., that will only exacerbate what is going on in cyprus
1: you you mentioned uh, russia's interests in cyprus Uh, will they come to an end will they be diminished by this experience i mean there's already talk that a lot of people took their money out who were in the know took their money out before this crisis a lot out
3: yeah a lot of money has been leaking out or been pulled out and in fact there's going to be an inquiry in cyprus of how it was that so much money was sort of siphoned off and got out very quickly but that is the way of banking You know, know, banks work very well when they're, A, lending to each other, and there's inside information on how they're lending. And the Russian money, a lot of the Russian money, is still in there in some way or another. You can't get everything out, and therefore people are demanding uh, some result from it, but they won't get that result um, because fundamentally Europe doesn't know how to handle it
1: well let's move to the other side of the world now because america has flown two b2 stealth bombers over south korea as part of an ongoing military exercise a statement said the move demonstrated the u.s ability to conduct long-range precision strikes quickly and at will on tuesday north korea said it had ordered artillery and rocket units into combat posture to prepare to target u.s bases in hawaii guam and the u.s mainland yesterday it cut a military hotline with the south and um, christopher this all comes against the backdrop of a new pact also between the US and South Korea. Just explain the implications of that pact. OK,
3: the pact is a, is a consequence of all this, if you like. We call it sabre-rattling by uh, Kim Jong-un, the, 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 the relatively new leader of and, North And it, Korea. is this
1: pact a sort of a, p- a peace-rattling, as it were?
3: Yeah, the point is, is that the, the Americans have got 26,000 26, troops based in South Korea. And so when the Koreans, North Koreans say, oh, we can hit Hawaii, A, they can't hit Hawaii. Hawaii, they don't have the range in their systems, but they can hit 26,000 troops. So the Americans and the South Koreans, to cheer everybody up and for internal consumption as well, have to say, right, we've got a new defence back. They have a perfectly workable defence back. So this is not quite window dressing, but it's telling the North Koreans, listen... Don't mess with us. It's also telling it China, don't mess with us. Uh, it only works if the, Ch- if the North Koreans don't do anything. And the North Koreans uh, is, is, is an unstable system. And therefore, nothing that you do which is, has any sort of sense of logic in it uh, is anything else but defiable.
1: Now, this week, the government announced Bristow Helicopters will take over the running of Britain's search and rescue service. The private company has been awarded a £1.6 billion contract to begin when Royal Navy and Royal Air Force Sea Kings retire from service in 2016. BFBS reporter Julie Knox has been covering the story. Julie, you've been reporting from RNAS Culdrose this
0: week. Presumably people there are soon to be out of a job. Well, they'll be out of their current role. They will be obsolete, the skills that they have and the job that they have been undertaking, some of them for very many years indeed. Yes, it's true. So uh, 771 Squadron, which is at this naval air station, um, which I spent time with, it's feeling, in a sense, a great regret, but it's something that they've got used to coming. They know that the seeking cannot go on, that the government cannot necessarily afford for our military to provide the service any longer because um, it can't afford to buy the new aircraft or uh, upgrade to the standard that it would need. And so the seeking has had its life extended uh, a number of times in fact but the end date is set for 2016 and from late 2015 this new contractor, Bristow, will be in charge and there will be a managed transition with uh, the new search and rescue services being private from about end of March 2016. But, you know, for some people, um, this could be an opportunity. I spoke to uh, an observer who's very senior. In fact, he's in his 33rd year in the Royal Navy. And um, obviously for people like that who can retire and perhaps move across and still do the job that they want to do for a private firm, they could be laughing. Um, But for others maybe who don't want to lose their pension, who enjoy service life, they may indeed have to retrain on another aircraft or go to uh, another role within the services. That observer I was speaking to is Lieutenant Commander Andy Watts.
2: A lot of the people now doing it won't have a long career in search and rescue. However, on the flip side, depending on how long they stay in the services, there is now a civilian company, or will be a civilian company, doing search and rescue. So they can transfer these very valuable skills that it's very difficult to acquire elsewhere. And I think that company will be quite keen to be involved if people are willing to move across.
1: So, Julie, the
0: government tells us it will be a better service, this new service, will it? Well, it's going to be faster. There are going to be much newer aircraft. Let's not forget, of course, the Sea King has been doing this role since the 80s, but it was never designed to do that. The aircraft was an anti-submarine aircraft. It's had um, bits taken out of it and shelving and racking bolted in, and it's, it's performed brilliantly as a search and rescue platform, but um, it's been a bit of a sort of let's modify and make do. And uh, everybody, of course, agrees that um, having a bespoke aircraft to the task, kitted out with the latest medical equipment that can perhaps fly faster before refuelling although it will have fewer seats in it for passengers so there may be issues, there have been some concerns about if it needed to pick up a larger number of survivors than the sea kings the way they're configured at the minute for both the Royal Navy and the RAF Um, would that be an issue? Would there be compromised? There are also issues of course um, like people wondering uh, is profit going to be the bottom line here this is of course a private concern um, and and profit might be a, a an issue Uh, Is there ever going to be a situation where the people who hold the purse strings, the people who write the insurance policies ever say that rescue is not worth it? Um, Of course, the people who are going to be operating the service at the grassroots level and the military who are now commenting on it will say, of course, all of the people who are doing the job will have the same level of professionalism Mm -hmm. and that they will, many of them being ex-military presumably, will have that concern. But maybe their paymasters might have other concerns and you just don't know whether that conflict may arise in the future really is the end of an era, though, isn't it? Absolutely, it's the end of an era. Um, in a sense, the military was seen as Britain's public face doing something good rather than warmongering in this role. And, um, of course, you know, over Cornwall Cornwall Hotel I was staying in even had the picture of the red and grey sea king behind the reception desk. Everybody sees it flying around, waves up at it. Um, fishermen are very happy to participate in any of its training drills and let them land on and winch people on and off because nobody knows when the next person may need that help and so they hold it in such high esteem but there's been an issue of it being held in such high esteem because it's the military as well, there's an extra love there and perhaps maybe a private contractor while of course there's still be respect for the job that it is doing, might have to work a bit harder to get that um, public appreciation that maybe has an extra layer to it because it's our boys doing it um, but 771 squadron is still training, um, it's taking on new crewmen, winchmen and a student pilot, Lieutenant Jim Carver who's very pleased that Um, at least for a couple of years he gets this job
2: to be honest i think that if you sort of spoke to any any pilot within the navy they do anything to be in the position where i'm at everyone's got a pretty good attitude towards making the best out of a very sort of bad opportunity i'm very fortunate that it's going to be for myself uh, my first operational job as a search and rescue pilot a lot of people would like to do this
0: and so he'll be doing it just for about a couple of years until until the role is retired.
1: BFBS reporter Julie Knox, thanks for joining us. Um, Christopher, some might say it's a sad end for military search and rescue. But it had to happen, didn't it?
3: About time it happened, actually.
1: And Um, you're saying that as a man who loves the Royal Navy?
3: Absolutely, I mean, yes, yes. I mean, somebody who was in the Royal Navy, but and also uh, was attached to uh, an SAR squadron as well.
1: And why did it have to happen? uh, Well,
3: I mean, there are all sorts of reasons. Um, I mean, one is the economics of the whole structure of the Navy and defence anyway. And the second part of it is the aircraft had to be... Retired, you can bolt it together for so long, but after nearly half a century, you, you can't go on doing that. And this this idea of of privatisation actually works with a lot of organisations, and it's worked in other parts of the world, but not so intensively as the uh, as the as the UK SAR. I mean, the great test is if I'm hanging by my toenails from the sort of North Rock in Wales. I really don't care who's driving the helicopter who's going to lift me off, um, whether it's uh, private or or, or Royal Navy. But don't forget, you know, this is absolutely right. This is a new role that people will be going to. And the defence industry has got to to step in and sort of finance a lot of these things. And, you know, they're not going to turn around and say, look, we're not going to go to that job because uh, it's not financially worth it. The terms of reference when this thing takes over will all be sorted. And that's not difficult. Whether they go and rescue sheep in Scotland who had buried in a snowdrift is not <laughs> <a> matter altogether. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. We'll have to see on that one. We'll see what the contract looks like for that. Christopher, stay with us. This is BFBS. sit The Royal Navy's last remaining Type 42 destroyer has completed her final journey, journey home to Portsmouth. HMS Edinburgh is to be decommissioned in June, having clocked up nearly 800,000 miles across the world's oceans. Christopher, another end of the... Of an era for the Royal Navy.
3: I think it's, yeah, I think it's, it's not just the Type 42, um, which Edinburgh is. It's, I mean, looking back, we had the Type 21, the Amazon class. Um, uh, the Type 23 is, or the Type 22, then the Type 23 going, uh, and the Type 42. It's the end of the surface image ...of the Royal Navy. It's all changing.
1: And also, the, it, I mean, considering what it was involved in as well, this ship... Um, yeah. ...right back to the Falklands, the yeah. two Gulf Wars. I mean, it really is sealing a, a chapter, isn't it, in military
3: history? And I think that in naval history, this whole thing, as I say, the 20, one, Type 21, Type 22, Type 23, Type 42, it's, it's, it's almost they're the sailing modern sailing ships because what's replacing it is the Type 45, and that is the change from the, to the Type 20, uh, 45. It's rather like the change from sail to steam. It is remarkable. And then following on will be the workhorse stuff, the Type 26. The surface fleet of the Navy is absolutely changing, and I think it ought to be marked when you start looking at what it has done. And don't remember, you don't always need the super-duper stuff. You don't always fight the first 11.
1: And while we're talking about things at sea, what are the Russians doing right now in the Black Sea?
3: Well, uh, President Putin has got on to the guys in the Black Sea, the military commanders, and says, right, get it together. I want a quick exercise. I want to see how good you are. How quickly will you react to me saying, we're going to war? Um, The background to this is the poor performance of that sort of Black Sea Grouping and also the uh, the, 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 the ground forces when they went into Georgia. That's going back a couple of years. But it's a it's a fascinating thing. You know, we we start off we're, we're talking about Syria. We talk about uh, North Korea. We're talking about what's going on in Afghanistan, uh, Iraq still uh, and terrorism. Still, there is one of the biggest military machines in the world is in Russia. They still have their own problems with border disputes. They still have their own problems of inefficiencies. And that's what we're seeing here is Putin saying, listen, I need a diversion. You guys set to. It's going to be interesting. He's just kept it under the, under the limit of what you're supposed to internationally uh, sort of advertise that you're doing. I think the satellites will be tilted a quarter of a degree and the listening posts will be tuned up and retuned. To find out just how good the russians are
1: well that is all we have time for this week my thanks to all of our guests and our defense analysts to you christopher lee if you'd like to join the debate we're on twitter and you can tweet us at bfbs sitrep and remember you can listen again to this week's program on our website bfbs.com slash sitrep we'll be back at the same time next week but for now from me kate Chabot. thanks for listening goodbye